Romans chapter 3, starting from verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Thank you very much, Sophie, for reading for us. Uh, love you to hang on to that passage. Uh, if you want to find some headings, then... Uh, there are a few on the final page of the service order um, for you to look at. Last week, we were grappling with what one writer uh, has described as the, the, the most important single paragraph uh, ever written. And it is a paragraph that describes this, this radical, uniquely Christian belief that we are justified, that we are right with God. Not by works, not by what we do uh, or who we are, but we are right with God, righteous in his sight, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we acquire that righteousness uh, simply by believing. Only it is really hard to believe. To see just how hard it is to believe, walk with me on a little thought experiment. Okay? I want you to imagine a really bad day. 
This day begins with a power cut in the middle of the night. Only you don't know about the power cut until the morning when you discover that the power cut reset your alarm clock. And now you are, in fact, uh, an hour late getting out of bed. So you get up in a panic and a sweat, uh, rush to the shower, where you discover that you have a cold shower because the power cut also reset the heating controller. Things go from bad to worse when you, you rush downstairs and discover that there is nothing in the cupboard for breakfast, but you've no time to eat it anyway because you've got to get to work. You, you whiz out, having clearly had no time to look at the Bible or say a prayer, uh, get out into your car, turn the ignition, nothing, flat battery. At that point, you remember that your sister's five-year-old was playing in the car yesterday, and they've left the lights on. Dark, unpleasant thoughts filter through your mind. Eventually, you arrive at work, 45 minutes late. Your boss greets you with a stony face uh, and subjects you to a 15-minute tirade about a piece of work that you had completely forgotten. Uh, was supposed to have been completed three weeks ago. Having been thoroughly chewed off by your boss, you you slump down finally in front of your your desk to have one of your colleagues uh, come over. It's the colleague who you have been planning to invite to the Christmas carol service. She wants a little bit of help with a task that she's doing. You're not in the mood for giving any help, and you let her know that in no uncertain terms. Soon she is scuttling back to her desk, muttering under her breath, some Christian you are. The day continues in a similar mode until you arrive home to find a note written by your spouse or your flatmate that says, I know I was supposed to be cooking for us this evening, but something came up. Can you pop down to Waitrose? Finally, the day ends. You slump into bed and say a brief prayer. Dear God, thank you that this miserable day is finally over. Please make tomorrow better. Amen. Now, by contrast, imagine a good day. You wake up to the sun shining, to the birds singing in the garden. After a delightful power shower, the smell of bacon drifts up from the kitchen. Can it be? Your spouse or flatmate has spontaneously decided to cook you a delightful full English breakfast. The time that this saves means that you have more than adequate time to spend ages looking at the Bible, which seems richly inspirational, as are your prayers, which are profound and meaningful. The car starts first time. The roads are unusually clear. You arrive at work, well ahead of schedule, to be greeted by your boss, who tells you that the company has just acquired a new contract, and you have a promotion. You sit at your desk. Work flies brilliantly all day. And at lunchtime, you get into a conversation with your work colleague, who has all sorts of interesting questions about the Christian faith. And you have all sorts of exceptionally good answers for her. (laughs) By the end of the conversation, she has committed herself not only to come to jazz carols, but also uh, to be part of the Christian Ed Explore course in the new year. You arrive home to find that your spouse or flatmate uh, is cooking dinner 
for the surprise event with a, a group of your favorite friends. The conversation is scintillating. And as you flop into bed later that night, you thank God for the glories of his world, for the wonders of his blessings. And you remember to pray for mission partners, for your neighbors, for that work colleague, for people that you barely even know. You even remember to pray for Giving Sunday. Now, here's my question. At the end of those days, if you're a Christian believer, as you get to the end of either the good day or the bad day, how do you think things are? It is hard, isn't it? Not to think that at the end of the bad day, you are somehow, in some way, in some sort of spiritual overdraft in relation to God. That that, that you've very much sunk down into the red. And it's going to take a few days before you're going to pull yourself back up into some sort of spiritual credit again. It's very hard, isn't it, at the end of the good day, not to have in your mind the, the sort of sense that Gosh, things have gone well today. Gosh, God must be unusually pleased with me for all that I have achieved for him today. But here's the thing. Justification by faith means that it just isn't so. Justification by faith says that our standing before God how he views us, what he thinks of us, is not dependent upon our performance. We are no more right with him, no more acceptable to him, no more loved by him at the end of our good day than we are at the end of our bad day. But we find that so very, very hard to believe. Look again at chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we're thinking last week that this, this extraordinary gospel from God not only forgives us for the wrong stuff we do, but it grants us, it bestows upon us a status of righteousness before God. Which means that we are as much loved by God as God the Father loves and treasures his beloved Son. And it's just not dependent on what we do. It's just not dependent on a good day or a bad day. Because it is his gift to us. Uh, And this week, what I want to do is, is pick out two implications of that great truth. First, justification by faith means that for a Christian believer, there is no reason to boast. 
you've been following the, uh, the cricket uh, down under in Australia, uh, then you'll know that one of, the, one of the chief things over these past few weeks has been the sledging. That's cricket talk for rubbishing the opposition, saying all sorts of negative things about them. Well, in conflict, in competitions, classically in battles, that's how you do it. You, you puff yourself up by saying all sorts of excellent things about how good you are. Our bowlers are going to end some of their test careers this time. And you say all sorts of negative things about how useless the opposition is. You boast and you taunt. In order that as you step into the competition, you're feeling good about yourself because you've boasted of all your excellence. And you're feeling superior to the, to the, to the others because you've taunted and mocked them for their weakness and uselessness. But it's not just cricketers who do it. We're all at it. Constantly elevating ourselves over others. Or feeling crushed beneath others. On some scale or other, I, I, I gaze at you and I think, they're so much better than me. And I feel crushed by it. Or on some scale or other, I, think, I find some reason to think of you as less than me and feel better for it. We're constantly doing it, constantly measuring ourselves against one another and on some scale or other, positioning ourselves above or below uh, one another. We don't seem to be able to help it. And we imagine that God must be doing something similar, that, that the way that God must go about assessing us is also with some great ledger of positives and negatives. Uh, and, and our great task in life is to try and ensure that the positives that we do outweigh the negatives so that we'll, we'll get in, we'll pass the test. And of course, if that were the case, then we could boast, couldn't we? Haven't I done well? Look, I've, I've taken God's test and I've passed. I've reached the criteria. I've got the qualification. I've been measured against his laws and I'm in. But Paul says it's just not like that. For by the works of the law, no one is declared righteous. And to make his point... Paul gives us the example of Abraham. Picks out, as it were, the, the great forefather of the Jewish people. And see what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, accounted to him, marked up to him as righteousness. See, Abraham not considered righteous because of something that he had done. It wasn't that God looked and saw this courageous decision to leave Haran and said, Oh, you're in. 
Not because he'd sacrificed animals day after day, done his devotional Torah reading, and God said, ah, you've done enough now. You've reached my standard of righteousness. That's not how righteousness came to him. Now, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham received a promise and believed it, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Suppose this Christmas, suppose um, uh, you were to go into work, and um, your boss gives you a present. And you're quite excited because your boss has never given you a present before. Um, And uh, there it is, on your desk, um, wrapped up, ribbon, bow, all the works. I think this is very wonderful. So you unwrap the present, agog with excitement, wondering what lovely gift your boss has chosen to give you. And inside you discover your December paycheck. It would be a bit of a letdown, wouldn't it? Wouldn't there be a bit of you that thought, do you know this is not the way that Christmas presents work? This December paycheck, my salary, that is not a gift. I've earned that. Christmas present is a Christmas present. You're supposed to give me something, not just something that I've earned already. And that's the point that uh, is made in verse 4 of chapter 4. Do you see it? Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. There is an extraordinary phrase tucked in the middle of that, isn't there? Do you catch that? God who justifies the ungodly. You know, God, the great judge and arbiter, the one who upholds the morality of our universe, justifies the ungodly. Says that those who aren't godly are righteous. How does he do that? Well, that's what he accomplishes on the cross. That's what happens when judgment falls on Jesus instead of us. And that great swap that we were talking about last week takes place. And because it comes to us as a gift, because you don't earn it, you can't really boast about it. You can't use it to show how much you have achieved. And that's why chapter 3, verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's off-limits for a Christian believer. Because what we have as Christians isn't earned but given. Now, can I say this really does matter? Um, it, it matters hugely, not least because of our relationship with, with the watching world, if I can put it like that. Tragically, and what is often said of Christians and of churches, is that, is that people find us rather smug, rather sort of self-righteous, as if in some sense we are superior, as if we occupy some moral high ground from which we gaze down on others who don't do nearly as well as us, who don't come to church. 
And tragically, that perspective on Christian believers is often accurate. That is, sadly, and inappropriately, it is what we're like. And it is what we're like because we aren't living out of this doctrine of justification by faith. We will always drift towards being smug and superior and self-righteous if we allow ourselves to imagine that the reason that God has accepted us is because we're so excellent. We We come back to it again and again and again. We so easily fall into that way of thinking. Um, Let me try you another example. On my phone, I've got a Bible app. Um, And pretty often in the morning, uh, rather than get out a Bible, that's what I do. I look at the Bible on my phone. And it's got this little function in it, which I haven't managed to work out how to turn off, which records the number of days in a row that I've read my Bible. So when I open it up in the morning, it might say something like, Well done. You have connected with God's Word for eight days in a row. And then it has some little sort of glittery things, sort of, you know, slimmering down the page. And despite myself, I can't help feeling, Ooh, aren't I doing well? It's pathetic, but I do. And then I miss a day, and then the day after I open up my app, And there's no glittery things coming down. And it's just, restart your Bible reading with streaks, day one. (laughs) And despite myself, I can't think, oh, no. No, I missed a day. Now I've got so many days before I can get back to my eight-day streak again. We just think like that. We are constantly measuring ourselves by our achievements feeling good when we think we're doing well, feeling as if God somehow is now pleased with us in some special new way. If we are to set aside our smug self-righteousness, then that's the kind of thinking that we have to let go of. We need to believe that we are just as right. At the end of a good day, at the end of a bad day. That God accepts us just as much after an eight-day streak and after an eight-day miss. Justification by faith means that. It means Christians have no reason to boast. And then secondly, more briefly, justification by faith also means that we have every reason to be united. There are a host of differences amongst us this morning. I guess you're aware of that. Um, On all sorts of measures, all sorts of natural attributes, if I can call them that, um, we differ. There are some here who are very sporty. uh, And there are some who would struggle to catch a ball. And if we lined up that spectrum somewhere and asked you to position yourself along, we'd all be at different places on that spectrum. We could do the same with artistic ability. Some of us just find it very easy to draw something, and some of us just couldn't draw for a toffee. Or musical ability. Some get to stand up here and play for us. 
Others of us sing quietly so that people around us can't hear how out of tune we are. I mean, we just differ on intellectual ability, on, on strength and weakness, all sorts of ways in which we just vary according to our natural attributes. But so much of the time, we, we take those spectrums, as it were, and, and turn them from just a sort of horizontal differences. And it's as if we flip them up. One writer says it's as if we, we lift them up and, and put them up against a wall, as if they now become a ladder. And the measure by which we know that we are succeeding, the measure by which we know that we are getting somewhere, And we start thinking to ourselves that if we can just climb up on this measure, then we will will have arrived. We'll feel worth something. But as this writer says, we've just taken a range of human differences and turned it into a vertical ladder. And the ladder leads nowhere. It's a ladder that goes nowhere. It's as if it's up against a breeze bot wall, and when we get to the top, we haven't arrived anywhere. It's just a difference. But because we do that, because that's the way that we think, we, we find ourselves dividing and disagreeing and feeling disunity amongst us as if there are some A-stream Christians and then some B-stream Christians. As if there are some people who are really doing well and therefore really accepted with God and others who God's not really really pleased with at all. But justification by faith says that we are all equally right with God because it doesn't depend upon our merits, but upon Christ's merit given to us as a gift. And that means that there isn't a basis on which to to, to gaze at others and think that we are the Christian that God approves of, and they aren't. No, it's as if we are on level, a level playing field before the Lord all equally accepted, whether we've been a Christian for 40 years or a Christian for 40 seconds, whether we're a Christian at the end of a good day or the Christian at the end of a bad day. There is an essential unity amongst us because of that same standing before God. And that becomes clear when we consider uh, the second little example that Paul uses in chapter 4, where he picks out David. Uh, what, What should we say David discovered in this matter? You remember King David? King David, the one who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then who had her husband murdered in a futile attempt to cover it up? Well, here's David's own reflection on what really matters, on what really counts. Blessed, he writes, are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count, same word, credit to you, whose sin the Lord will never count against them. David knows blessing. David knows that he is counted righteous, credited with righteousness from God, despite the terrible way 
in which he sinned and failed. So as we wrap up, let, let me just ask you as we finish, if, if you are a Christian believer this morning, how do you think of yourself? Instinctively, how do you, how do you weigh yourself? Who do you think you are? Do you think that you're an essentially good person? A person with, with talents and abilities? And God noticed those talents and abilities and thought, gosh, they would be really useful on my team. I'll recruit them so that they can use those most excellent talents for me. Because I'm not sure I can get by without them. If that is the way that we think, even if we'd never say it out loud, then you do have reasons to boast. God chose you because of your excellence. You do have reasons to look down on others, to feel superior to other people in the church or to other people outside the church. But if we think of ourselves as essentially people with a sinful nature, and and in that sinful nature, we rejected God. We lived in ignorance and unbelief. And it was only through God's mercy, only through his grace, that he revealed the truth about Jesus to us and then granted us this righteousness this right standing with him, this place of justification in his sight, just did it as a gift, despite who we are. If that's the essential way we think about ourselves, then we'll have no reason to look down on others, no reason to feel smug, no reason to feel as though we're better than other people inside the church or outside the church. We will have every reason to be united with one another. Do you see the sort of community that a Christian church should be, that Christ church should be, if we would get this? I mean, really get it. So that it, it sat right at the core of our thinking and behaving and living, that this is how we are right with God. It would produce something extraordinary in us as a people together. It would produce a community of extraordinary, unshakable unity. Because we would be a a people who don't measure ourselves on human scales. But know that there is only one measure that really matters. And on that measure, we've been granted righteousness. It would produce a community with an extraordinary capacity to welcome people in. Because we would never look down on others because we don't think they measure up or or because they're different to us uh, and we think of them as inferior. Because we know how we have been welcomed and uh, and it was never on the basis of our merits or lack of merits. It would produce a community with an extraordinary readiness to forgive. Because it would be a community made up of people who are not self-righteous but who know only too well just how much they themselves 
have been forgiven. It would produce a community that was extraordinarily gentle and gracious towards those who fail. Because it's made up of we who know that we too have failed, but have wonderfully been forgiven and restored by God. And finally, do you see that the way to create this community cannot be by trying harder, by trying really, really hard to work at our unity or or, or to work at our humility. You just can't get it that way, can you? Because if you did and you succeeded, you'd think, haven't we done well? And you'd have created the very problem that you were trying to solve. Now, the only way to get this type of community, the only way to arrive at this character of person and of church is by believing. Believing that this gift of righteousness is ours, just by faith. If we will believe that, really believe it, really be persuaded by it and all the implications of it, then all of the other things that we thought about, the lovely unity that exists within a church, uh, the lovely graciousness and welcome that a church should exhibit, all of those things will follow. So let me lead us uh, in a prayer that God would grant us this faith to believe that these things are so. Uh, Father God, we confess to you that we are so prone to measuring ourselves against one another and either feeling smug and superior or wearied and uh, inadequate. And we are so sure that these things apply in our relationship with you. Uh, Forgive us that we don't believe what you say. Uh, Forgive us that we don't trust you Uh, when you tell us that you count us righteous because of Christ. Uh, Help us uh, to have faith, uh, to so believe this gospel of grace uh, that we are transformed by it uh, because it shapes uh, the way that we think, the way that we relate to one another, uh, the way that we uh, speak about Christ and about the Christian faith. Uh, Please help us uh, to believe. Uh, May your spirit lead us uh, to a faith in your grace uh, that would bring about the transformation into the sort of people uh, that you desire us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.